0: So, Carol, what are you coming up for the next one? What are you coming up with for the next one? <laughs> Good morning, everybody. I haven't said it in a while. I love you. I love you guys. Yeah, you're just the best. And all of you that uh, tune in, thank you. It really blesses us to see those of you that are part. And if you're watching and you've never chatted, even just to say, hey, I'm here, I'm watching, um, you know, do that. Because, number one, it's a real encouragement to to us. And secondly, it helps us gauge, you know, what we're doing and our analytics and... And also let us know what you're liking and not liking, of course, about, about the service. We've received uh, comments in the past, one even this morning, and uh, we take those things to heart so that we can you know, look at those and uh, adjust so that we can be uh, proactive and even better in our presentation. So that's important to us. As we consider this morning's message, uh, there were a couple of thoughts I wanted to begin with, which was to my memory, I have never taught a series on the subject of hell. I did so with a little bit of trepidation coming into this one. I think that's because, you know, it's just, it's a big topic and it's very controversial and you might lose people or people might criticize you or, you know, and Lord knows we don't want to lose anybody we don't want to lose anybody that's attending or watching i don't want to make people mad and yet i was compelled not only from questions i was receiving about the topic but because my approach to it i feel has been quite redemptive my, my goal wasn't to disprove the existence of hell rather it was to prove the character of god I, I wanted you to see his reconciliation of mankind. And then I wanted to share the message that I believe constitutes the gospel. Now, again, you've got to get a couple of these books, all right? I've been recommending these to you. I'm going to put them on the screen, at least the one that this, this uh, series is based on, all right? Get this book by Brad Jerzak Her Gates Will Never Be Shut. You say, now, you know, I I don't read. Or when it comes to theology, I don't read anything outside of the Bible. Okay. Well, then, we become a prisoner of our own ignorance. And I don't want that for you. Socrates said, I cannot teach anybody anything. I can only make them think. Philosopher Elaine de Bolton put it this put it put it this way, and I think put it best. Wisdom starts with owning up to one's own ignorance. Ignorance. My ignorance is, is part of my ignorance. <laughs> and you know nobody nobody wants to be criticized. I mean, uh, certainly the people have leveled the, uh, criticism. Um, in, in years gone by, in the past several years, since we've been going through deconstruction, people have leveled criticism about a number of things uh, and, a, and a number of doctrines that we have come to think differently about. And so criticism of heresy be, because of our posture and position on this subject of hell or that we've left the faith or that we're deceived, I can't help those people. I can only help you. I can only challenge you to think more deeply and critically about the stuff that you believe, including even the Bible, because frankly what I believed about the Bible was what I was told to believe about the Bible, both growing up as well as Bible school, Bible college. In this series of messages, I've pulled from the work of some of history's as well as present day's greatest theologian scholars and writers, including the writings of the Patristic Fathers such as Clement and Origen and Ignatius, Swiss theologian Karl Barth, Scottish theologian T.F. Torrance, we're going to hear from him today, English theologian N.T. Wright, we're going to hear from him, and American theologian and pastors Gregory Boyd and Brian Zahn. I owe a deep debt of gratitude to the work of Brad Jerzak, Canadian author, speaker, pastor, and teacher, for his work, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, upon which this series is based. Numerous comments I'll share today are reflections or citations from the work of T.F. Torrance. Here's our big idea this morning as I uh, thought about this final message in the series. Is it possible that God is so good that the gospel is so scandalous that redemption will reach all of humanity and all death will be swallowed up in victory, the victory of God's love. Is that, is that possible? <laughs> well, none of us truly knows until the very end. Of course, there's people who are certain they know and they know everything about it, but Our text is found in Romans chapter 11. So if you have a device and want to join me there, or if you just want to look on. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 31. So also they have now been disobedient in order that, by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! Unscrutable means not readily investigated or interpreted or understood. Imagine the Scripture says, and this is New Testament, that God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Even the disobedient that experience a measure, it's not described, of imprisonment, God is doing it that he might show his mercy. God's doing it out of a heart of love that he might redeem them. I think that is fantastic. Is it possible that God is so good that the gospel is so scandalous that redemption will reach all of humanity? You know the gospel was never a first century message of how to go to heaven and how to avoid hell. Athanasius preached that the most breathtaking and overwhelming announcement In the universe was the angelic message that God would become man in the incarnation of his Son. Now we've got to remember that Jesus is not plan B. Rather his incarnation into humanity was the plan of the Father to include us in perichoresis from eternity past. That Greek word means divine dance, the dance of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, their relationship together, which is one of love and mutual sacrifice and self-giving, is described in this Greek word perichoresis, which means to twirl or to dance. It's not a hierarchical structure, which is what I was taught. You know, God's here, then comes Jesus, then comes the Holy Spirit, and then there's all this submission and army and all of this stuff and none of that is true the father doesn't think about the son is under him the holy spirit doesn't think about the father is over her it is in the feminine holy spirit the word for holy spirit is in the feminine (laughs) it's a divine dance it's a circular twirling and God has taken us much as you would experience say in a dance you're out and there's dancing going on and you're looked to and invited to come participate in a dance and in that moment you become one you're part of what's going on you're holding hands you're touching you're loving you're giving it's mutual you're in step together no one's better than the other it's not looked at as that it's enjoyment it's fellowship it's beauty that is what god from eternity past had planned for humanity even before the quote fall of adam and eve in the garden Jesus is not plan B. The gospel presented in the New Testament reveals that in this one man, Jesus Christ, God dealt not only with sin's disease, which took advantage through the first Adam, but with the whole human race. Paul's preaching, which is the gospel, declares us, humanity that is, crucified with Christ, raised up with Christ, and seated with Christ. At the Father's right hand 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 Paul concludes one died for all therefore all have died here's Francois de Troyes comment on this God found us in Christ before we were lost in Adam I love that what a wonderful take on that God God found us in Christ before we were lost In Adam again Jesus isn't plan B God didn't say oops what are we gonna do now when Adam and Eve quote fell whenever that was whatever that was that's questionable but we know this it had nothing to do with what God had planned for Jesus to be incarnate in human beings and for us to be one with God Baxter Kruger says the eternal purpose of the triune God is not to place us under law and turn us into religious legalists. It's to include us in their relationship and to give us a place in their shared life of fellowship and joy. I think one of the biggest issues, and we've dealt with it in this series now, of six messages, today being the sixth, you've got to listen to Messages 1 through 5 to to get the context of what I'm about to tell you. But I I, I think that one of the reasons it's so easy for us to see ourselves outside of the Trinity and not one with God and at a distance from God and, and, and that he's angry is because we see him as an angry God and we see Jesus as a bloody sacrifice. And that bloody sacrifice is based largely from the New Testament Scripture it's based on this passage here we go Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 and here's how it's quoted without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins and when people are quoting that they always forget the preceding phase or phrase excuse me the phrase under the law here's the whole verse I'll put it up for you look at it indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins." And then the writer continues in that chapter to tell us, it didn't work. Sacrifice didn't work. Bloody sacrifice for the remission of sin was not God's design. It didn't work. And so when we haul off and proof text, and say you know without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sins that was true under the law but we don't live under the law Wow you know I never understood that until I begin to deconstruct from Bible college and what I was taught and what was inculcated into me as the truth and question what I believed and read after other individuals of a different opinion When reading the Old Testament, there are two rules that must be applied. These aren't the only two, but remember, number one, we talked about this in the previous two lessons, metaphor. Everything you read in the Old Testament or the scriptures of the Hebrews isn't meant to be taken literally. Secondly, when you read passages about God destroying and, and God doing evil and God killing and wiping out whole people groups. You've got to understand, number one, there's metaphor involved. But number two, oftentimes, this is talking about God's consent rather than God's causing something. This is true in the Hebrew languages and in the text, especially of the Septuagint, the Bible that Jesus would have had and read. Paul's revelation throughout his letters, by the way completely void of the use of the term hell in Paul's letters, never used, was that Jesus lived in union with us. He died as humanity, the second Adam, so that humanity would rise in him. So is this position that we're talking about universalism? Well, Let's understand first what we mean by universalism and a a clarification on that called universal atonement. Borrowing from T.F. Torrance now. Salvation is not a mere possibility. It is an accomplished reality. As God incarnate, Christ fulfills both sides of the covenant, God's side and our human side on our behalf. Isn't that beautiful? God does that. He didn't ask our opinion, He didn't invite me into that decision. <laughs> Here, I'll have this one up on the screen for you. This means that our human response to what Christ has already done does not contribute anything to our salvation. Salvation is not dependent upon our human response, because Christ has already provided the perfect human response. Remember, God became human called Christ, called Jesus Christ. God became human, took on flesh, and became a human being, and then died on the cross. And what he did, our human response, can agree and live in accordance with this reality or not. But the reality of what Jesus did is already accomplished, whether you agree with it or not. Now the doctrine of universal, universal election or atonement is simply nothing more than the attempt to be faithful to the self-revelation of God in Christ. That revelation speaks of the reality that all humans are united to God through the incarnation of the Son of God via the hypostatic or hypostasis union that has united divine and human nature in the one person, Jesus Christ. Hypostasis means the substance or essential nature of the individual. Jesus was fully human, but he was fully God. He brought heaven to earth. He joined heaven with earth. And Jesus, in the person of Jesus, God combined God with humanity. And it's called the incarnation. And he didn't ask my opinion. He didn't ask if he could do it. He didn't ask my agreement, and what he did brought salvation to all of humanity. We're talking about universal election. We're talking about universal atonement. Now, having been united in this way with God, people are then called by the Spirit to participate in that union. The subsequent work of the Holy Spirit, which involves human response, leaves open the the possibility that some people will refuse to participate. In other words, human will, human freedom. It's one of the greatest gifts that God gave to humanity was our will, freedom of choice. What is universal is God's love and reconciliation, not that all people will participate in that salvation, which has already been secured for them. Here's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 from Paul, the gospel that Paul preached. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Notice, God is not reconciled to the world. He didn't need to be. The world is reconciled to God. There's a difference. Not counting their trespasses against them. If he's not keeping track, why are you keeping track of people's sins? (laughs) And entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. Amplified translation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them, but canceling them. Isn't that great? Francois Dutrois in the Mirror Translation says this, Jesus did not act independently of his Father. God was present in Christ when they reconciled the total cosmos to themselves. Deity and humanity embraced. God's act of reconciliation takes every other conclusion out of the equation. No amount of trespasses can match God's evaluation of the human race. Redeemed fellowship is now announced from within us. I'm one with God already. I'm one because of what God did, not because of the choice that I made. How many are you understanding this, huh? All right, let's talk about the reality of hell, because you've heard me say already, I, I'm not telling you I don't believe in hell. There is a hell. So what are we talking about here? There is a reality to hell. And concerning the reality of hell, T.F. Torrance said this, If the light that is in us be darkness, how great is that darkness, to choose our own way And yet in that choice still be chosen by God would be hell. TF believes, and I quote, God does not send the damned to hell, nor did he create the hell that they experience. God loves the whole of humanity everlastingly it is in rejecting this love that one can experience a hell of one's own creation. Notice, it's your own creation. Hell is of your own creation. It's of your own doing. You, you choose that. It has nothing to do with God making that choice for you. His choice has been made. It's called Jesus Christ. And God, in Christ, reconciling us to himself. Even when a man has made his bed in hell, God's hand of love will continue to grasp him there. My voice got very low. It's kind of like an announcer's voice on the radio. that nice? <laughs> it's so fitting for the topic of hell. So are you asking me, does hell exist? Oh, most certainly hell exists if you don't believe that just ask the individuals who went through the great revolt in 66 CE or up to 70 AD when all of Jerusalem was completely wiped out and leveled by the Roman Empire how about the colonization of the Aztec Empire in the 1500s wherein listen to this there was papal debate as to whether the inhabitants of Central America were human. Those who were, quote, Christian, came in and wiped out the Aztec Indian people, took them as slaves. Such brutality forced upon them. And back at headquarters, there was papal debate whether or not they were even human beings. That was in the church. the Church we say we believe in and are taught by. If you question the existence of hell, just inquire about the Black Death, 1348 to 1350. Peaked around 48 to 50. The Black Death is thought to have killed. Now get this, I double checked it. Is thought to have killed up to 200 million people in Europe a staggering 60% of the total European populace was wiped out by the bubonic plague the infected would find bulbous fist-sized boils at the site of flea bites most commonly found around the groin, the armpits, or the neckline. These intensely painful swellings would at first be red before turning black, giving the epidemics its name. Once you developed these boils, you were expected to be dead as quickly as within two days. Does hell exist? Could there be. A worse, a better description? How about the the transatlantic, transatlantic slave trade of the 1500s to the 1800s? Three hundreds, three, excuse me, 300 years of the most barbarous, unfortunate, tragic, trafficking of humankind that our own country was front and center at the slave trade listen to this one of the slaves whose name was Margaret Garner escaped just briefly taking her child with her and before her impending capture which was certain she killed her child to liberate her from captivity. How about the Holocaust 1945? The attempt to eradicate the existence of Jews in Europe. And most disturbing are the accounts of Yosef Mengele, called the Angel of Death. Mengele was a graduate in anthropology and medicine conducted, he conducted a number of human experiments on captives of Auschwitz, including attempting to change their eye color through various injections into their irises, amputations that he'd make of their limbs, and co-joining two people, so he trying to make twins out of them. I mean, just barbarous, ugly, satanic, dark, evil at at, at its core type of things went on during the Holocaust. Is there hell? Yeah, there's hell. Man has made it such. And you want to blame any of that on our loving Heavenly Father? And that somehow he would, for all eternity, derive pleasure out of sending somebody out of sending those who don't believe correctly to such a place because that's what the traditional western evangelical idea of hell is eternal conscious torment see you you recoil at what i'm reading to you right because it's so barbarous, so dark so ugly we recoil at we say oh my Oh my gosh how could how could another human being imagine to do such evil against another human being and yet we have a doctrine of eternal conscious torment in the evangelical western largely not eastern church of jesus about our god see i never questioned that critically until the last several years, and I invite you, I invite you, regardless of where you come down on this, I invite you to question, to think critically, to look at scripture, to read outside of the voices that you've always believed. I'll give you a last one that's very current. How about the human suffering going on in the Ukraine? How about the racism the murder the sex trafficking and religious persecution of those who aren't like you that goes on right here in america in virtually every city so what about this (laughs) what about this Are, are you just saying jeff that evil people like hitler won't have to go to hell? Are you, are you saying that murderers won't wind up in a place? What about the unjust and the cruel, those who intentionally cause pain, terror, shame, and in, in an effort to, to steal, to rob, to carry out their selfish or evil desires? What about the unbelieving and those who harden their hearts and won't receive Christ? <laughs> Will there be justice for the victims Of this murderous hell that human beings have carried out against other human beings the perpetrators will there be justice carried out against the perpetrators perpetrators on behalf of the victims what are we saying two of the voices that I think have some of the wisest counsel about this some of the most biblical counsel are the author of the book that we've recommended to you, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, by Brad Jerzak. And then Greg Boyd, who I will credit Greg and his book, uh, "Religion," Repent. Repenting from Religion, Repenting from Religion, which came into my hands not even 10 years ago it turned my world upside down as i tried to read it i I, i'd read a page or two and i'd have to put it down because i got so mad (laughs) i got so so angry it was so challenging to what i believed and how i believed and so i will credit greg being, being one of the dearest bible teachers and theologians that i now have the deepest respect for Greg said in a recent uh, teaching, he said that, you know, the case for universalism is much stronger than people realize. However, we still need to see in Scripture the warnings about rebellion, resistance, and refusal. Let me give you a couple. Because when you come across these, I know what your mind will do. You say, well, here, you know, over at the church and Pastor Jeff and some of the things he's recommending, Seems like universalism and everybody's saved and it's all okay and you can just live any kind of way. But here I'm reading Titus chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the corrupt and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their very minds and consciousness are corrupted. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their actions. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. (laughs) It's like, "Mm, that's in the Bible. In fact, that's in the New Testament. In fact, Paul wrote that to Titus. Who was a pastor? Second Peter chapter two verse eleven. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Of course, I'm I'm accused of being one of <laughs> one of the just those who teach destructive heresies second corinthians chapter four verse three through four and even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to those who are perishing in their case the god of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing clearly the light of the gospel of the glory of christ who is the image of god second corinthians chapter four by the way i'll just put in a personal note you notice none of these talk about the outcome being and God will send you to eternal conscious torment. Now, there's things here that are very broken and that are very evil. And people who are resisting all the way apparently up until the end and don't want Christ. What's going to happen? And what's going to happen to Hitler? And what's going to happen to the murderer? And what's going to happen to those who carried out the atrocities during wartime? What's going to happen? to the current warlords and those who are managing the war over the Ukraine that's now killing innocent citizens, not, 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 not even warriors, but going after innocent citizens in order to break the will of the country. Here's one of the most devastating. It used to always set me on edge because I couldn't reconcile it with where my heart was going, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 through 29. For if we willfully persist in sin, after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries certainly sounds like eternal conscious torment, (laughs) sounds like hell, anyone who has violated the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by those who have spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the Covenant, by which they were sanctified and outraged the Spirit of grace? Yikes! Right? Holy moly! Can you say that? Can I say that? Holy moly. I I might mention at this point how precious and how awesome it is to be in my present Bible class, weekly Bible class, on the book of Hebrews with Paul Young, Brian Zan, Brad Jerzak live we're in class together right now on the book we haven't gotten to chapter 10 so I'll I'll tell you once we get to chapter 10 I'll circle back around and give you an answer but I mean this all looks like judgment to me and as Greg points out these passages are there for a reason to warn of the consequence I taught you in the very first lesson of our six lessons sin has consequence don't think that this message is one of just go out enjoy yourself do whatever because there's no consequence in the end no sin has consequence and sin is real and the hell of your own making is real In fact Greg points out and says you know regarding reality how about this reality You'll find it in the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve and what God said to them. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Satan comes and says, no, you won't. You'll become wise like God. Who are you going to believe? Now that's reality. You see you are free to create your own or an alternate reality regardless of God's reality regardless of the incarnation regardless of the fact of perichoresis and that God's done all that he possibly can do to redeem you and reconcile you to himself you can still create your own reality my sister who I'm confident is with Jesus, was five years older than me. I had a brother who was five years younger than me. Both of them have passed on. My brother was a worship leader for a number of churches, loved God with all of his heart, and served Christ passionately. My sister, a drug addict. To put it in a term you might understand, she kept redefining bottom. I mean, it, it looked like we were getting, you know, a hold of her and able to help her, and we'd we'd help her and we'd give her some money and we'd get her into some new housing, and and she would redefine bottom from there. We'd get her clean for a little while, and then back she'd go and it become even darker. And she died in that condition did she go to hell <laughs> see the way she was living didn't change what God did for her in Christ or the incarnation one bit and she had quote profess Christ received Jesus all of those traditional Western evangelical things but she sure wasn't living it. you see God is always doing as much good as possible everywhere Given the restraints of creation and human choice, Paul talks about this in Acts 17, where he says that God's at work in every human will, uh, every human heart, to will of his good purpose. In him we live and move and have our being. He was saying that to a group of non-believers, even Roman citizens, even with those who are not of us like other religions. Is Gandhi saved? Frankly, Gandhi is more Christian than many who claim to be. you know what you see in people like Gandhi? Echoes of the crucified God, the cruciform life seeping through, and you see that in many, many religions, and it's wonderful. How about all those in our own Old Testament as, quote, Christians, that we claim the Old Testament to be the Jewish and Hebrew Scriptures part of our, quote, Bible? they didn't know Jesus, they didn't follow Jesus, they hadn't prayed the prayer, gone forward and shaken the hand of the pastor. How about Noah? Was he saved? Moses? Aaron? (laughs) How about Abraham or Job? Did they make it? Now, I know exactly what those of you who are trained and steeped in evangelicalism maybe have gone to Bible school are saying at this point. Well, they didn't know Christ, but they were considered righteous because it was imputed to them, is the word that's used, imputed. That dispensational doctrine, of course, would say, That's a dispensational theology, dispensational theology of, well, righteousness can be imputed by faith. It's a looking forward to. Yeah, I know, they all looked forward to Christ and understood faith, and that's really reaching. Unfortunately, the recent and unsufferable doctrine of dispensationalism creates the necessity to put everything into nice, neat little jars with labels. The fact is that these people all died, perhaps in faith, but not knowing or following Christ in the required teaching of Western evangelical Christianity. And I say to you that our relationship with God is individual and unique. Your relationship with God is individual. Only God can hold you accountable. And he's grading on a curve, by the way, because he knows how you're made. He knows what you're made of. He knows your form. He knows what makes you tick. You're graded on a curve. And interestingly interestingly enough, though Greg is accused of being a universalist, a modern-day liberal universalist, just believes everybody's going to be saved regardless, including maybe even the devil, he's one who actually would qualify as, who sees the value in conditional immortality or what some would call annihilationism. Annihilationism believes that for those who refuse to the end and set their heart in rebellion, that they will simply get to the end and perish. But there is no eternal conscious torment. Greg says, you know, I'm very hopeful. I want to believe in universal salvation or he does believe in universal salvation i want to believe in universalism to the nth degree but i know there's consequences and i know there's warnings and 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 maybe maybe there's a purgatorial cleansing many of the early church fathers believed in a sort of temporary place where you would go and you would be challenged and you would suffer and there'd be a cleansing And then you'd come out the other side, and that's not altogether different from what some of our precious brothers like N.T. Wright believe today. I love this from Greg. I'll quote it here, and it'll be on the screen. Here's what Greg said. You know, the default has changed. You're out unless you make yourself in by believing, is what the traditional evangelical believes. But for God... You're in unless you put yourself out. Isn't that good? The default changed. The default used to be you're out unless you make yourself in by believing. That default has changed, even if that's true, if that's the Old Testament. Jesus changed that. You're in unless you put yourself out. So is there hope? We started with this key idea. Is it possible that God is so good that the gospel is so scandalous that redemption will reach all of humanity and all death will be swallowed up in the victory of God's love? N.T. Wright, in a recent message, uh, brought out one of the most fascinating passages of Scripture. I have never considered, never seen this before. I want to bring it to your attention. It's found in the Old Covenant, or the old testament scriptures isaiah chapter 6 we're going to read verses 10 through 13 just three verses let's go here we are make the mind of this people dull and stop their ears and shut their eyes so that they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed then i said how long O lord and he said until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is utterly desolate, until the Lord sends everyone far away and vast is the emptiness in the midst of the land. Watch this, verse 13. Even if a tenth part remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth, or an oak whose stump remains standing when it is felled the holy seed is its stump." Now to be clear this chapter in Isaiah is definitely talking about judgment and it's not pleasant and in fact these verses are quoted by Jesus and each of the four gospels and that's rare to find something like this in all four gospels There is a message here, but notice that at the very end of the judgment it says, an oak whose stump remains standing when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Though God's message here isn't comfortable, it may be talking about people who are so rebellious And turning from God and have such a hard heart that there's some sort of judgment they enter into, some purgatorial cleansing, I don't know. But then look at the extraordinary mercy. There is a way forward. It's a message of hope. He says, but then the stump. I have pictures of this, and I wish I had had the time to look through my selections and grab it and put it on the screen for you. But you've all seen this, I'm sure. Have you been in a field or in a forest or out on some farmland where the trees have been felled, they've been cut to stumps, and then seen what oftentimes is growing out of the top of the smooth stump where it's been cut? Yes, there may be judgment. But even in that ultimate judgment, God says, there is a holy seed. You see, here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, though a seed die and go into the ground, it remains by itself or alone. I must die in order to bring forth life. He was the seed that must go into the ground. He said, but if it goes into the ground and dies, it will spring forth and bring, and bring much life. He said this just before his death, burial, and resurrection. So we go into the darkness of Friday before Easter, but we come out Sunday in glorious light and resurrection because the Holy See is that stump that delivers us he is our tree he is our water there is a continual new testament refrain that salvation has come to all we passed out little scripture words that have been given to about six seven eight of you would you grab that if you are the recipient of one of those And then Carol's going to bring you the microphone so that we can hear it over the live stream. I would like to just read to you now. And I'm actually, I'm I'm going to listen along with you. We have seven, eight individuals here with that, with a scripture on a piece of paper. And they're going to read that scripture. Just simply read the scripture to you. And I want you to listen to what it says in the light of universal atonement universal salvation please the first one for to the end we toil and suffer reproach because we have our hope set on the living god who is the savior of all people especially of those who believe he's the savior of how many all All people Romans chapter 11 verse 32 who has that for God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all even those imprisoned because of disobedience God is going to be merciful to Romans chapter 5 verse 18 who has that one please right up here Carol Romans chapter 5 verse 18. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For how many? All. So the one man, the first man being talked about, we know to be Adam, right? The first Adam. And we know that condemnation came to the entire human race because of the first Adam, but then by one man's act of righteousness, we know that speaking of Jesus, well now you have to be intellectually honest here. If the, if the first man and what he did led to all humanity becoming sinful and lost, then intellectual honesty requires you to believe and translate this, that the second Adam the, excuse me, the last Adam, Jesus, that it translates into that all become righteous. Who's got the next scripture please? Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all. Bringing salvation to, I'm sorry? All. To? All. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 22. Who has that please? Would you read that? For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Okay, we missed a little bit of that because of some static. So it says, for as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. Isn't that good? All will be. All right, who's got John chapter 12? All right, please read that. Hold the mic real close to your lips. And I, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to me myself. That's right. And when I When I'm lifted up from the earth, speaking of his his crucifixion, I will draw all people to myself. Nobody's left out of all. All right, Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to end with that. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fulfillment of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Making known to us the mystery of his will. It's his purpose. He set this forth in Christ. Before you were ever born, before you were lost in Adam, you were found in Christ. To do what? To unite what? How many? All things in heaven and earth Does that leave anything out does it leave you out all things all people he's uniting to himself is it possible that God is so good that the gospel is so scandalous that redemption will reach to all humanity and all death will be swallowed up in victory oh what a gracious hope huh what wonderful hope i love 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 this redemptive hope i hope this series has helped you i hope i hope this series has helped you i hope it's given you a new hope (laughs) i hope it's helped you see god differently say well pastor jeff i guess the thing i'm struggling with is that you've talked about universalism you've talked about annihilationism you've talked about eternal conscious torment you've talked about while god loves everybody there may be some purgatorial suffering and cleansing and purging oh my goodness we read isaiah chapter (laughs) 6 about judgment but the stoop uh, uh, the stomp of it you know eventually they'll be live yeah and I like Brad's take on this Brad Jerzak who's one of the teachers of my weekly Bible study he says yes the scripture is full of polyphonic passages I said what's that mean polyphonic polyphonic has to do with music or sounds it means many sounds simultaneously or in music more than one melody being played but both are discernible and both help make up the score and both can be true both can coexist there's many passages in the bible that are polyphonic